As we come in and settle down, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we complete the seventh and final church in Jesus' seven letters to the churches of Revelation. So before we read the passage and get into that this morning, let's just go ahead and pray and we have some things to review and sort of summarize as we come to this last church. So Lord, as we open your word together this morning and we come to this time in studying the church of Laodicea, we ask you, Lord, to, uh, to minister to us, to speak, to open our hearts, to hear and to receive the things that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may recall as we have been going through the, these seven letters that they each have a pattern and they follow sort of this uh, seven step or uh, seven uh, item uh, pattern in each letter, uh, a commission. Each one is given to the angel of the church in each town or city. Jesus draws upon a character from uh, himself, mostly from chapter 1 of Revelation, and he brings that character, characteristic quality of his nature to bear upon that church's situation, whether good or bad, or something that he needs to address with the church. Then he usually has a commendation, except for two of the churches. Uh, he usually has uh, some type of correction or commendation, uh, condemnation rather, but I have this against you, and the correction usually is, comes in the form of rep- repent or turn, or, or you need to change in this area or in these ways. And then each church uh, letter ends with a call, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So both the plurality of the churches is, is addressed as well as him who has an ear, the individual listener within each church. And of course, uh, this is uh, the, the seven cities that we've been looking at and it's sort of a, a postal route, a, a circuitous route, starting with Ephesus, going north to Smyrna, then to Pergamum and Thyatira. Those were the first four letters addressed in chapter two. And then uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea being the last three addressed um, in chapter 3 as we're finishing that up this morning. Something that's probably good for us all to just sort of get in our minds, and by the way, if you want any of this, let me know. I'll be happy to send it to you. Uh, This is sort of an end time events timeline. If you can search this stuff, there's there's tons of this stuff out there uh, on the web. However, Sometimes they have a little particular slant to them. I've tried to scrub this of, of the unhealthy stuff and tried to simplify it as much as possible. So this is a timeline uh, really looking at uh, just prior to the book of Revelation and through the end of the age as Jesus called it. So if we start with and put our stake in the ground at the, the time of Jesus' resurrection, which was around 34 A.D., and we've studied this over and over, right? Looking at the triumphal entry and we know those markers and those dates and those times. When Jesus had resurrected, there was a period of 50 days from the end of the feast of the Passover to the feast of first fruits and uh, the, the feast of Pentecost. During that 40 days following Jesus' resurrection, he of course appeared to his disciples on many occasions and then he ascended 
into heaven. And then there was a period of about 10 days where the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and for the day of Pentecost to arrive. And so from Jesus' resurrection, we then have his ascension and the time of Pentecost, and we have really the birth of the church there in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then we enter this period that we call the church age, and that's the period that we're focusing on here right now in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. And the church age ends at the time when the rapture of the church takes place and the uh, seven-year tribulation begins. Uh, the, the time period for the church age, we know because of where we are now in time, that it's been nearly 2,000 years since our Lord uh, resurrected and then, of course, he sent the Holy Spirit to the church and the church, church was birthed. And of course, we wonder as we read passages of Scripture, like in, in Peter's writings, where he says that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Well, we're, we're about two days into it, according to Jesus. But Jesus will come and he'll rapture his church, he'll take his church, his bride, out of the world prior to the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. And as he takes his church into heaven, and we'll see this as we get it through the next few studies, the word church, the church itself is not referred to again in the book of Revelation until Revelation 21 and 22. So we see the church is taken out. And when we get to Revelation 4 and 5, we're in the throne room of God. And we're seeing what worship is truly like in the presence of God. And the church is there with the, the elders and the, the living creatures and the angels worshiping around the throne. And it's Revelation 4 and 5 to me is just a glorious study for us to look at worship and how God truly intended worship to be. And then we are moved into that period of time called the seven-year tribulation that's talked about in the book of Daniel. This is also known as Daniel's 70th week. And that's Revelation chapters 6 through 18. And we talk there about the bowl judgments and the, the vials and the trumpets and all of those things as God pours out his wrath on an unrelenting, unbelieving world, still calling for people to come to Christ, still having the gospel preached. God himself ordains and anoints 144,000 Jewish witnesses, 12,000 from each tribe to go out and preach the gospel to the Jews, both in Israel and across the world, but then of course to the entire world, to everyone, to Jew and to Gentile, still making one last appeal before he draws the final curtain on mankind. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we come to that glorious time called the second coming. This is what Matthew chapters 24 and 25 is all about. And the second coming of Christ, we hear people talk about this all the time in our culture and in society. Well, it happens in chapter 19. And as we enter chapter 20, both the beginning and the end of chapter 20, which covers a lot of history, it covers the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, we see Jesus sort of activate the lake of fire. And he takes Satan and, his, and uh, his, his angels and he casts them to the lake of fire and bounds them for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, he reopens the lake of fire and we then have the great white throne of judgment that takes place in chapter 20, at the end of chapter 20. Then in chapters 21 and 22, we have a new heaven and a new earth.
But what we want to talk about on this next slide is that, that church age slide, Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3, and something we have not talked much about throughout this study has been that, uh, that aspect that the seven churches cover uh, seven periods of church history up to the present day. So let's just talk through this for a moment. If we look at the church of Ephesus sort of representing the first century church, covering a time period from 34 AD uh, to around 100 AD, this was the crucifixion, the apostles, and then uh, around 100 uh, was the, the last apostle died, who was the apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation and closed the canon of scripture for us. And then the church of Smyrna, the suffering church, the persecuted church, covering a period from about 100 to about 312 AD. Uh, 312 AD is a significant time because that's the time when Constantine, the emperor, comes on the scene and Constantine gets saved and he decides because of the position of power that he has that he's going to give the church favor with the state. Uh, throughout the empire, and he tells people, no longer will you persecute Christians. They are a protected people, a protected uh, religion. But it was really during the time of Pergamos, around 380 AD, that another ruler, one of the successors to Constantine, named Theodosius, actually makes Christianity the state religion. It was out of that period of time, uh, from 380 to about 606, that the church morphed into what we know as the Catholic Church, which was birthed in the 600s. And so throughout the period of the 600s up to the 1500s, there was a lot of progression, but the Catholic Church, and they called themselves the Universal Church, uh, morphed into this thing that was unhealthy, and they had unhealthy doctrines that they developed, and they developed things to support their systems, and they believed in the perpetual papacy of Peter and uh, the, the the perpetual vir- virginity of Mary, and they began to worship Mary, and there were all these things that they did and that they instituted that people who were true believers began to say, you know, this is not okay, this is not right. And it was in the 1500s that we have our first printed Bible that comes to light. And it was in uh, October 31st of 1517, so you can see that transition from Thyatira to Sardis, that uh, Martin Luther came on the scene, and you may be familiar with what is called his 95 Theses that he nailed to the door of Wittenberg, the castle in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, He was a Catholic monk, but he was protesting uh, as vigorously as he possibly could, and you can go Google this and read the things that he protested, that were, were heresy, they were false doctrine, they, they were false teachers, and he was standing up against it. And this ultimately, of course, led to the Reformation. And you see that crossover again from Thyatira, really a lot of people see Thyatira as sort of referring mostly to the time of the Catholic Church and its rise to fame and power. And then the Church of Sardis, sort of representing the Protestant Reformation, coming into full swing, the rebellion of the people against the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, and thus, by extension, to anything else that was false. And, of course, the word Protestant, if you weren't familiar, means to protest or to rebel against. 
And this was, uh, many people would say, uh, especially writers of these days looking back, that while the Protestant Reformation and what it did was good in standing up against false doctrine, that it didn't go far enough in its reforms. A lot of it was just, hey, that's wrong, this is right, but they didn't fully take it to the place of getting into people's hearts. Now, the time of the Church of Philadelphia is seen from, uh, it's interesting as you look at this here, from the time of roughly 750 to the rapture of the church, but you see sort of this divergence, right? It's like the fork in the road. You see Laodicea from 1900 to the tribulation, and so there's an overlapping of the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea from a historical point of view. The Church of Philadelphia roughly coincides with the Great Awakenings and the global missionary movement that we have seen happen throughout the world. The church began both to be more serious and deliberate in sending out and funding missionaries and missions during that period of time from 1750 to roughly 1900. The first Great Awakening happened uh, in the English colonies here in the United States between 1725 and 750, and these were this was the time when the men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and others who came in that era, these were the men God used to stimulate and to foster this first great awakening, which is a great thing to study and to read about. But then there was a second great awakening that followed starting in the mid to late 1790s, moving into the 1800s, and that was an awakening that was focused in the con- this country primarily among Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists, and it was out of the Second Great Awakening that many of the great colleges and universities we have today were founded. They, they were originally founded as Christian universities. In fact, most of what we know as the Ivy League schools were founded during that time as Christian universities. Now, as we think about that today, we're like, wow, they were? Because they are so liberal, they have gone so far away from the truth of God. There was a third great awakening, or many call it more of a revival, during the period of 1880 to 1910. And a lot of this uh, period of time was happening as people were immigrating into the United States, and there was sort of fresh people, fresh perspectives coming in from other parts of the world to the United States. And so there was this great revival that happened into the early part of the 20th century. But then what most people would call a fourth great revival or perhaps even a great awakening happened uh, in our lifetime in the, the mid to late 1960s through into the 1970s known as the Jesus Movement. So you can sort of see how this all uh, comes into play here. And, and I would say, and I think we would all say here, if we consider ourselves today more of the Philadelphian church, evangelical Christians who believe in the word of God, that we are due for another revival, for another great awakening. Amen? We need that. We need to be praying for that. We need to be seeking that. Well, as we come to the church of Laodicea, an interesting thing happens around the turn of the century. As we mentioned, there was sort of a revival going on between 1880 and the early 1900s. But as we cross into the 1900s, and this will help put a lot of things in perspective for you, there was... Uh, the, the Laodicean church, as we're going to see this morning, is, is being referred to, of course, as the lukewarm church. 
Some have referred to it as the foolish church, and many refer to Laodicea as the apostate church. And certainly, there is a segment of the church today that is indeed apostate. A few weeks ago, I sort of showed you a video clip of people standing up and saying crazy things like the name it and claim it, or some people call it the blab it and grab it, the prosperity doctrine people, those kinds of things. But here's how this sort of began to develop. Around the beginning of 1900, it began the rise of what we would call liberal theology. And these were people who began, they they moved into what we call liberalism with respect to theology, by beginning to question the authenticity and the veracity of the scriptures. And because they began to do that, and they began to do that to a large extent in in, uh, universities, uh, this thing called textual criticism arose. And it started looking for problems in the the texts and the manuscripts that we have. And that's one of the reasons why we have so many translations today. But this rise of liberalism and liberal theology where you call everything into question, and when you come to the place where you're questioning the veracity and the authenticity of the scriptures, you're now at a place where you're questioning, is the Bible truly the word of God? And so certain groups, certain segments of that line of thinking began to take the word of God and say, well, this part of the word of God isn't accurate, They began to come up with ideas like the book of Isaiah, for example, was really written by two different Isaiahs, things like that. And so this textual criticism and this rise of liberal theology also introduced a thing known as post-millennialism. I know that's a big term. What that means is, uh, is when we did our first introduction to the book Revelation, we talked about four major schools of thought. One of those schools of thought was a school of thought that says, Anything can be spiritualized, it can be symbolic. And it basically is, it means to you whatever it means to you when you read it. And it has set aside uh, what we would call good sound hermeneutics or a solid approach to interpretation of the scriptures. And it just says the reader is free to interpret things however he or she wishes. And so this has led to what we know today and refer to as progressive Christianity. It's led to and spawned what we call the social gospel. It's led to uh, preaching for politics. It doesn't mean that it's wrong to speak about political issues in society from the pulpit, but it means there are churches that have sort of uh, acquiesced to the politics of the time. And certainly as we have gone through and looked at these different churches, we have seen how Jesus has addressed that many times the church is more influenced by the world than the world is influenced and affected by the church. And so these are some of the things that we look at and we would hopefully consider ourselves to be a part of the Philadelphian branch of the church today as opposed to the Laodicean branch. However, I think you'll see as we go through this that Jesus has something for us in that as well. As we get into the study today, one more thing I want to point out to you is uh, this is another view of that map of the seven churches, but if you'll direct your attention, if you can see it in the lower right-hand corner, you'll see the church of Laodicea, but you'll see just north of Laodicea by a few miles, six or seven miles, is a city called Heropolis. And just south of Laodicea is the city of Colossae, which, of course, Paul the Apostle wrote to. It's going to be important for us to understand that relationship in a few minutes between Hierapolis, Laodicea, 
and Colossae. So let's get into the church of Laodicea this morning. Um, Because I've got this up, we won't be able to have that scripture come up there. But uh, you have a Bible with you, and if you don't, look at your neighbor's Bible. And let's read through this passage together. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen. I'm going to need that back in a few minutes, by the way. Uh, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot, and I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who sits, excuse me, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Laodicea was founded in around 260 BC uh, by a man named Antiochus II, and he named it for his wife Laodice, and thus the name of the city Laodicea, whom he later divorced, by the way. It's interesting, this city of Laodicea, like most of the other cities that we've looked at, there are strong characteristics of this city. This city was a center for Caesar worship, like some of the other cities. This was a a city that also was a center of the healing god of Asclepius. We talked about this before, what we know today as the medical symbol with the two snakes entwined around a pole, uh, which was borrowed from... Moses um, in Numbers chapter 22, I think it was, where Moses was instructed by God to lift up the serpent on the pole. But it was uh, reappropriated and perverted uh, throughout time by pagan religions. There was a famous medical school in this city. And its claim to fame was it invented an ISAF, which... Today, uh, we know, if you know anything about eye medicines, boric acid is one of the uh, main ingredients in most um, eye drops and eye ingredients used to treat conditions of the eye. Uh, this, This whole idea of using what is now known as boric acid was discovered by the medical school in Laodicea. So you sort of get a sense of this idea of the, the city was very proud, of course, of this accomplishment. Laodicea, like many of these other cities, was a noted commercial center. Its goods were exported all over the world. Uh, we note that Laodicea, like other cities, had certain things it prided itself on. One of them was financial wealth. This was regarded to be the wealthiest city of all of these seven. And it's interesting, this was one of the smaller ones that only about 17,000 people. It had a very extensive textile industry. 
one of the things they had uh, native to their region was this particular form of uh, black wool that was very shiny. And so when the light hit it, it just had like a sheen. And today it would almost look like sequins to us. But it was something that was unique to them and, and not other regions. And so because of that, they of course became in high demand for the export of this particular kind of refined wool. And so that was part of what caused them to be um, as wealthy as they were. One of the problems that the city of Laodicea had is, again, being positioned. Uh, can I have that uh, back now? Let me uh, try this again. Uh, being positioned between those two cities of Hierapolis and um, Colossae. Let's try that again there. Says it's spinning. All right, while that's coming up, that uh, they did not have a good source of water supply for themselves. And so they, uh, try again, there we go. So they had to get, uh, build aqueducts to get their water from these two neighboring cities. Interesting thing, Hierapolis was known for having this amazing hot spring. Colossae was known for having this extremely cold and pure artesian well water. And so that's going to feed into this again in just a moment. Uh, Try that again. Maybe you can try just refreshing that one more time for me. So these are some of the background issues for Colossae, excuse me, for Laodicea. We also note that Laodicea, Laodicea was mentioned four times in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And in those four times, most of them were good. <clears throat> but in Colossians 4.16, we have it written, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there's a, a letter there that we don't have a copy of, uh, the Laodicean letter. Uh, I'm just going to try this again here, if I can kind of force it. If not, we'll have to go without. So that's something that's interesting. And then finally, the name of the city of Laodicea, there you go, means the justice of the people. And it refers to the fact that the people are the ruling party here in Laodicea. So that's one of the things that Jesus addresses. So as we get into this first verse, verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So Jesus calls himself the amen, the faithful and true witness. So he's calling their attention to the fact that he is the source of truth. And the word amen simply means a verily or a trustworthy or faithful. And we often today translate it, uh, so be it. So Jesus is known as the, the amen, the faithful and true witness. And I think the word amen could really be more a New Testament equivalent as it refers to Jesus of the Old Testament reference where God said, I am. So Jesus is really identifying himself as God and as Lord. And notice he says the beginning of the creation of God. <clears throat> He's not saying he was created. He's saying I was there at the beginning of creation. And we've noted before that as you read Genesis chapter 1, 
that the word used for God there is plural, Elohim. And it refers to the plurality of God. It refers to the Trinity all the way back at the beginning. And of course, the book of Colossians refers to this by saying, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Paul wrote of Jesus. So Jesus says he is the beginning of the creation of God. There's another verse, and this is why, of course, we read the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16, that says this, Come near to me, God speaking. Hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. As you read that in context in Isaiah 48, it seems to be a pre-incarnation vocalization from the mouth of Jesus speaking of himself. So even in the Old Testament declaring that he is, that he is a part of the triune Godhead. As we come to verse 15, we find again that Jesus did not bring any type of commendation. Instead, he starts out saying, I know your works, as he said to many of the churches, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. And it's interesting here, in the other churches, Jesus often addressed, as he did, certainly in Pergamos and Thyatira, He addressed false teachers and heretics and evildoers. But here in this church, there's no reference or or addressing the false teachers or the evildoers. He's addressing the people of the church themselves. And when he says that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish that you were cold or hot. The word hot is a very interesting word. Cold means cold. But the word hot here is the Greek word zestos. You can get the word, of course, zest or zealous for the things of God, boiling hot, hot, fervently hot. And so Jesus is saying to this church, I wish that you were one or the other, you see, because if you're cold, then you know where you stand. You know that you're cold. You know that you're cold toward the things of God, not just cold in a physical sense. But of course, this is referring to the spiritual condition of the church, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were, but he calls them in verse 16, lukewarm. And so the issue that he's addressing here is their spiritual condition. They are neither cold nor hot. They're right in the middle. You know, doesn't the world say this today over and over and over? You know, the place to be is in the middle, man. Should be in the middle. Jesus says, no, no, you need to pick a side. You're either cold or hot. I want you to be hot, but at least if you're cold, I know where you're standing. But if you're in the middle, I don't know if half of you is on the good side and half of you is on the bad side or whatever it might be. And he says, because you are lukewarm, because that's the position you, church, at Laodicea, that you've chosen, and you're neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And depending on your translation, it may say spew, it may say spit. Now, this is the only place in the Bible 
that this word is used. Incidentally, this is also the only place in the Bible where that word hot or zealous or zestos is used in the entire scriptures. It's used, the word zestos or hot is used three times in this passage. And this word vomit or spew is used here as well. And it's referring to the fact, just as it, it means to all of us, that, that you're, you're vomiting or you're expelling with contempt. And you know how it is when you get sick, and nobody likes to be sick like that, where you have some kind of a virus and you're in the bathroom and you're, you're losing your insides. It's, it's a terrible experience. But Jesus is saying he's going to cause himself to do this because of the condition that he finds in this church. So this is Jesus' assessment of this church. And I, I want you to understand, I don't care who stands here or anywhere to teach on the seven letters of the church of Revelation. This is not easy. It's not easy to do. It's not, you know, we can just read this and let the Spirit speak to us. But as, as we exposit it, as we dig into it, and we look at the meaning of the words, and what is Jesus saying? Uh, it, it's, it's as much of an indictment to me. And if it's not, listen, if, if the person reading and preparing and teaching to bring the word of God to his people is not affected by this, then there's not much hope for, for us. That meaning those of us who stand here, of course, the Lord addresses uh, those servants in the book of James where he says, let not many of you become teachers, brethren, for as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. So this is never, ever a, boy, I can't wait to deliver this and I hope they hear it. Never. God speaks to his servant first. And if we don't hear it, then God help us. One commentator says, what Jesus wants to change in us as much as anything is the deceptive playing in the middle, trying to please both the world and Jesus. You see, in previous letters, he addressed the fact, again, that the world was having a greater influence on the church than the church was upon the world. Jesus is looking here and he's like, I don't even see the line between the world and the church. He says, I could wish that you were cold or hot. This also points to another aspect of lukewarmness as a picture of uselessness. Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose. It is as if Jesus says, if you were hot or cold, I could do something with you, but because you are neither, I will do nothing. Listen to this. The lukewarm Christian has enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. So you can see that this letter is being written to a church that Jesus' heart is broken over. Because they don't even, it seems, have any type of a vital connection to Jesus. And of course, Jesus wants us to have a relationship with him. A loving relationship. He does not want us to have religion. He wants us to have relationship. Another commentator, Donald Gray Barnhouse, said, instead of being lukewarm, if you were so cold that you should feel the coldness, then the very feeling of your need might drive you to the true warmth of Jesus. But now in your lukewarmness, you have just enough to protect yourselves against a feeling of need. Isn't that an interesting perspective? 
Spurgeon, whom I could read you a full page of stuff on, but I won't, said this at the end of one of his little expositions on this issue of lukewarmness. He said, The world is always at peace with a lukewarm church, and such a church is always pleased with itself. In other words, the lukewarm church makes no ripple in the world. The world doesn't even know that church exists. The world doesn't even care that that church exists. Now, one person, and I am definitely borrowing this directly from him, uh, commented on what he sees as seven qualities of a lukewarm Christian. So understand, I didn't write any of this. So if you get mad, I'll give you his name and address. You can call him. He's still alive today preaching. Here's the seven qualities of a lukewarm Christian. One who straddles the fence spiritually. You know what? I've got him right there. There you go. That's why I wanted to keep this up here. Number two, one who has a conscience that is rarely troubled. So these are, these are signs for us, right? One who does not take Jesus or the Bible seriously. Number four, a lukewarm Christian is one who does not take sin or the lost world seriously. Number five, one who is erratic and sporadic in attending fellowship, not making church a priority, the assembling together of the saints, Acts 2.42. Number six, one who doesn't let the Bible serve as the guide for life. And number seven, one who has no witness to others. As I read that list, the first time I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, how many of those speak to me? And so these are things that we need to consider. These are things that have weight. Again, talking about Spurgeon, I'm going to read two things that he says as he speaks to pastors in particular. He says, uh, the, speaking of people who are past, lukewarm pastors or pastors of lukewarm churches, the pastor does not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel and he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he is certainly not a burning light of grace setting men's hearts on fire. So now you can begin to understand through the church history things that we've talked about here, how especially those things that happened from the beginning of the 19th century on quenched that fire in the hearts of men, quench that fire in the pulpits across America. So as we come to verse 17, he says here, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What is he saying here? Because we have, as a church, the church of Laodicea has come to this place of saying, I have all this wealth. I have this self-sufficiency. In fact, one of the interesting things of their history was like some of the other churches we mentioned that sat on earthquake fault lines. This, this city was also, uh, at a previous point in history, destroyed by an earthquake. And when it was destroyed, the Roman government came in with a stimulus package, literally, and said, can we help you rebuild your city? And they said, as leaders of the city, no, thank you. We are all set. 
We've got everything we need. We have all the money, all the resources. We don't need your help. No, thank you. And so now Jesus addresses that by by saying to them, because you say I am rich, because you have become wealthy and you have need of nothing, and where do those things lead often in our lives? A place of a lack of dependency upon God. See, it's not that money and riches in and of themselves are bad, but anything that causes our hearts to come to a place where we are more dependent on ourselves than on God, than on his word, than on the Holy Spirit, then you end up in a place like the church of Laodicea because you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I don't have need of anything. I'm all set. And you do not know that you are instead. Now listen, Jesus says their condition is, I'm okay. I'm all set. I'm good. And Jesus is saying, you got it all wrong. Those very things are your downfall. He says, you do not know that instead, you think you're wealthy and have need of nothing and you're rich. Instead, I say to you, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus' assessment. Now, it's interesting in the epistle of 1 John, there were seven times that John addresses with the, the people that he's writing to, seven sayings, seven things the church said about itself. He says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So they have a false assessment of who they are. They have a profession, but they have no substance to their lives. 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 2.4, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is the condition of Laodicea. 1 John 2, 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. There should be something coming forth from our lives. There should be a manifestation from our lives. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. You can't be in both places. I gotta do this again. And then... uh, Chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So this is what God's word says. So this idea, this mentality of being wealthy and having need of nothing is something that robs us of something God desires us to have. And here's what it robs us of. It robs us of fellowship and communion with himself. It also robs us of fellowship and communion with others. And here's something that's a common thing in the church, capital C, the church at large today. We don't share our needs and hurts because we are, quote, self-sufficient. We don't share our needs 
and our hurts, we say, and when somebody says, hey, how are you doing? Now, we often sense that it's not a genuine question anyway, but if we responded with, with truth and honesty in the body of Christ, rather than saying, I'm doing just fine, but meanwhile, we're struggling or we're torn up on the inside and we have financial issues or emotional issues or spiritual issues or whatever it may be, rather than praying and asking and seeking and knocking or turning to trusted people within the body of Christ or saying, hey, I'm not going to share the details, but would you pray for me? You see, we first go to God, but secondly, God has ordained that the body of Christ be here for such a thing that we minister to one another. A Christ-sufficient, Holy Spirit-dependent person gives a real answer to the question of how are you doing? And I understand there's much distrust in the church today, and much of it's due to the spiritual immaturity among believers. But what he wants his, his church to do is to get healthy so that we can look one another, one another in the eye without judgment when we say, here's my sin that I'm struggling with. And remember, James even tells us, confess your sins to one another and thus be healed. And allow someone to come in to help us. You know, again, Acts 2.42, devoting yourselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is the model for the church. It's the basis for the church. A proper biblical attitude would be what we see, say, in Matthew chapter 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus saying in Matthew 13, uh, the seed that's sowed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, part of what it promises. And we have songs, right? Money can't buy me love, all those kinds of things. It's true. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word and the word becomes unfruitful in our lives. Jesus, of course, said to the rich young ruler who said, I've done everything. Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Mark chapter 10, Jesus answered and said, here's what it says, let me read it to you. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him, And Jesus is speaking to this church with love and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This is the church of Laodicea. And don't get hung up on the fact that we're speaking of money here. It can be anything, right? Anything can take our heart, captivate our heart, and take us away from being dependent upon Jesus Christ. It's, this idea is even found in the Magnificat. That's where Mary is giving her praise after the Lord has revealed to her she's going to bear the Messiah. Luke one fifty three says this, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Even there. Because that's what he was going to do through Jesus. Well, he says, and you do not know, right? They had improperly assessed their condition. And let me remind us of this 
beautiful verse in Jeremiah 17 because we so often don't accurately know or understand or assess our condition. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Jesus, I think, Something he said in Matthew 7 probably applies here to this church of Laodicea. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. It's interesting that Jesus is now saying to his people, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. I wonder, and I don't know, but I wonder how his tone was when he said this. And of course, he's dictating a letter. But he's saying, I counsel you. Have you ever had someone say to you, or perhaps you've said to someone, because maybe you're sort of the subject matter expert on what you're talking about, and you can tell the other person's just, they're not having it, they're not going to hear it. And you say, look, listen, my advice to you is to do this, this, and this. And if you don't, it's not going to go well. And I think that's somewhat of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to his church, I'm counseling you. I'm providing counsel here, okay? The counsel of Jesus. He's counseling his church. And he's saying this to them (coughs) because they are not coming to him. So he's coming to them and he's saying to them, I counsel you to buy from me. Now, how do we, what is the currency? How do we buy gold refined in the fire? How do we buy white garments? How do we buy ourselves clothing that covers the shame of our nakedness? And where do we get the eye salve you're talking about, Jesus? Because we know what we have, but you're telling me about something that I don't have. In Isaiah 55, listen to the voice of the Lord. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. See, Jesus is saying, come and buy, but it's the currency of heaven, isn't it? It's the same currency that as if he had said, well, come and buy salvation. How could we do that? We can't. We can only come to him and just beg and plead and cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. And in so doing, 
God will give us that gold that's refined in the fire, the fire being the fire of purification, the fire that says here is what you truly need. Here is something that's not going to, to burn up. Remember, he encouraged us in Matthew 6 to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy and thief cannot break in and steal. This gold refined in the fire goes into the bank of heaven. And it falls into that category. He wants us to be rich, but he doesn't want us to be rich like we want to be rich. We're all hoping that we win the lottery or that somebody makes a clerical error and a couple million bucks shows up in our bank account. That's what we're looking for. And he says, no, that's, you've got it all wrong. That's not wealth. That's not riches. That's mammon. Riches is found in Christ. Riches is found in heaven. Riches is found in the kingdom of God. I want you to be rich in those things. And when he talks about garments, we've talked about this before, but to remind us, garments, white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Why? Because we are deceived. It's just like with the Hans Christian Andersen fable about the emperor's new clothes, how someone had brainwashed and convinced this emperor that in his nakedness, he actually was, you know, had the the best garment on, he had the most royal garb on, and finally he gets out and he's on this parade down the street and he's completely naked, sitting there in his carriage, you know, people are playing along, oh, look at the king, look at his garments, and one little kid goes, uh, Dad, does he know he's naked? And all the, shh. Don't tell him the truth. And Jesus comes along and he tells them the truth. He tells us the truth. Revelation 7, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Where do you get it? You ask Jesus and he robes us in his righteousness. What could possibly be more humiliating than the shame of nakedness? Matthew six thirty. once again, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, you need to get the boric acid, the eye salve from Jesus, the spiritual kind, the kind that opens your eyes that you may see and behold wonderful things from God. You know, it's spoken of with respect to salvation. That when we come to salvation, we move from darkness into light. And as it's uh, told us so many times in the Gospels, I was blind, but now I see. And it would seem that Jesus is saying to this church that maybe part of the church isn't saved, that they don't know him. He's addressing them as if they are in darkness. And he says, therefore, be zealous and repent, be hot, be on fire, be fervent for the Lord. Repent, turn. And notice he says in verse 20, now of course we've sort of misapplied this verse in our gospel tracts, but he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now Jesus is speaking to his church, right? He's saying to his church, I stand at the door and knock. Where is Jesus in respect to his church? 
He's outside trying to get in, isn't he? If we can get this up for one last time here, I don't know if it's going to work. I actually have a painting, picture of a painting by a man named Warner Salmon. You've probably seen it. But it's a picture of Jesus standing and knocking at this door. And one of the striking things as Jesus is standing knocking at this door is in the picture there's no handle, there's no doorknob, there's no access from the outside. Jesus is knocking on this door because the members of the church have to open it from the inside. They have to open the door. They have to let him in. So Jesus is outside the church knocking, trying to get in. If anyone hears my voice, please open the door. And I will come in and dine with him and he with me. You know, in the other things that Jesus had to say to the other churches, it seemed that so often, yes, he was addressing individuals, but he had to address the church. Here, I think he's defaulted from addressing the church as a whole to, to addressing individuals saying, look, if there's anybody, hey, is anybody there, you know, Anybody home? Cars are in the driveway, lights are on. Anybody home? This reminds me of, because I've been so into music all my life, many years ago, a song by Paul McCartney. Somebody's knocking at the door, somebody's ringing the bell. Somebody's knocking at the door, somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor, open the door and let them in. And this, if you will, is what Jesus is saying to this church. Maybe he's speaking to some people today who need to hear these words. He says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This is referring to the evening meal, the meal that is sort of the meal of the day of the house. And Jesus is saying, look, what I want to do, remember in the Jewish motif, having a meal with someone was fellowship, it was koinonia. And Jesus is knocking on the door and he wants to come in and have that fellowship, that sweetness of communion with you and with me. Finally, one last quote here. Jesus knocks through circumstances and he calls through his word. For what is he appealing? Fellowship and communion. People's desire to abide in him. The Laodiceans were an independent church that had need of nothing, but they were not abiding in Christ and they were not drawing their power from him. They had a successful program, but it was not fruit that came from abiding in Christ. Note that when we invite him in, the supper room becomes a throne room. It is not through communion with Christ that we find, excuse me, uh, it is through communion with Christ that we find victory and become overcomers. Jesus said in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You know, if you go back and you look at each of the things where Jesus says to him who overcomes, I'll do this or that. Isn't it interesting in this church, the church that seems to be the most desperate and destitute for the very presence of God, that he says to them, if you will overcome, if you'll open the door, if you'll let me in, if you'll repent, if you'll become hot, if you'll become zestos, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne. It's not like he just said, I'll give you some great wealth and riches. 
I'm granting you to sit with me, to sit beside me on my throne before God. Do you see how desperate he is for you, for me, for us to see and to understand his love? Just as I overcame and sat down with my father, you get to come sit with me. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One pastor wrote, it's either God or the world, the devil owns the fence. Choose a side. Again, Matthew 6. Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Because you see, the sad story of this church is Jesus is knocking because they weren't. And so his call to the church of Laodicea And to any church today and to any people today who might fall into that category is the same as his appeal always is. It's not too late. You can turn. You can change. And if you will, look at what you'll get. You're going to get the fellowship of Jesus. You'll get the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You'll get fellowship with Jesus. He'll come in and sit with you. He will make your dining room his throne room. He will grant you and grant me to sit with him on his throne. If we will do but one simple thing, and that's renounce our self-sufficiency, renounce our independence, and say, Lord, I need you. I will come to you. I will buy gold refined in the fire. I will ask you, Lord, for those robes of righteousness to, to clothe my nakedness. Lord, I agree with you. See, confession is agreeing with God concerning his assessment of who we are and what we're going through. Will we knock? Or does it take him knocking? Lord, we ask you this morning that you would, if need be, knock super loud right now that we might hear you. But more importantly than the knocking is the turning and the knowing and the drawing near. That's what you desire. That's what you desire for your church. It's what you've always desired. To love people, to know them, to have them fellowship with you and you with them. That's all you've ever wanted. To bring in your blood which covers our sins so that you may usher us into the throne room of God. That we might be there for all eternity with you. Lord, I don't know that I or that any of us truly understand the depth and the breadth of your love for us. Even Paul prayed, I pray that you would know the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. Lord, this morning, may we know that love. May we know that joy and that peace and that patience and that kindness and that goodness and that faithfulness and that gentleness and that self-control, all of which you grant us 
by virtue of your spirit if we will just come and ask. So Lord, do that here today, we pray. Revive your people. Move us from wherever we are to Zestos. Fill us up, Lord. Set us aflame. Lord, help us to to love you and to, to be dependent upon you more than anyone or anything. Draw us close, Lord. We pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.